For this episode of our podcast, Conversations in Color, author, activist, founder of the Oakland Peace Center, the Reverend Shonda Rani Jha rejoins us to talk about her most recent book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. In this podcast, my colleague and friend shares a discussion with us about the feelings that inspired her convictions that we aren't whole without our full story. The story not only of our ancestral DNA, but the stories of others that need to be included for our lives to be blessed by the fullness of authentic reconciliation. For example, she shares with us the stories of Roger Taney and Lynn Jackson. Yeah, this is one of those, you know, when people are like, why are you trying to make me think about people in my history who are bad? This is such a great example of the beauty that can come from wrestling those whose with ancestors even our messiest ancestors. Were a part of one of the most tragic episodes in American history the Dred Scott decision. So please join us for this episode of Conversations in Color with Kate Hoeing, our Director of Communications at United Christian Parish, Shonda Jha, and myself. So it is wonderful to offer uh, our podcast to those who are a part of the family of United Christian Parish here in Reston, Virginia, and to those who are willing to venture uh, into uh, this experiment here, as far as our podcast that is uh, called Conversations in Color. Uh, The mission of Conversations in Color is a podcast to advance the story of United Christian Parish through this social platform that shares dialogue with the people who are cherished and respected as leaders, those offering their perspectives on the impact of their work as a solution to the important issues in our communities. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome to Conversations in Color once again, Shonda Rani Jha, who is an author, founder, and former executive director of the Oakland Peace Center. Shonda is an ordained pastor with a master's in public policy she is also a co-organizer trainer for pro-reconciliation and the anti-racism program for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ Reconciliation Ministry. Today, Shonda is with us to discuss her most recent book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. And so we welcome Shonda to this morning's uh, podcast. And before we get started, as always, I also want to greet Kate Hoeing. Hi. Hi, Kate. 
We are always want to express our gratefulness to you, Kate, for the important work that you do. And among those is your assistance in producing this very podcast. So I'm glad that you are with us today. So Shonda, again, welcome. How Thanks. are you doing? I'm holding up. I am uh, keeping busy. I am so grateful both to you, Marcus, and to Kate. I don't know if your listeners know that you are the reason I am a core organizer trainer with pro-reconciliation and anti-racism. You are absolutely uh, among the best I have ever come across at doing this work, and I am so grateful for all you've taught me over the years. Kate, did we increase that amount of that check that we're sending to uh, Shonda this week? (laughs) We did. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> Thank you, Shonda. You are very kind. Um, you're a dear sister. Uh, we don't talk uh, enough, but quite often we're in gathering spaces such as this, uh, meeting spaces where we get to greet each other. Yeah. And, and as a part of the work that we do with our church and with our community. So, um, but always it's good to see you. And you have been with us before. Have. You have played this game, Would You Rather, <laughs> before. Uh, and so uh, it is important to let those who may be listening with us for the first time to know that uh, this game that is rather popular for some folks, Would You Rather. Uh, but this is our intent to just have a bit of fun with those who are our, our guests on the podcast. And so Shonda is going to uh, to try this game with us again. Uh, and how this game is played is to imagine having two scenarios and having to decide upon only one of them. Sometimes neither of the two scenarios seem to provide a good resolution. And then again, sometimes both of the scenarios seem to be especially good. But the task for this game, would you rather, is always the same choosing only one of the two scenarios that is presented. So Shonda, are you ready to play? I am ready. I hear it in your voice. Would you rather be able to go back in time and change one historical event or see 200 years into the future, but not be able to change anything? So Shonda, your answer, and as always, the follow-up question to your answer. Tell us why. This one is super hard because, you know, every every TV show about space travel is or time travel is always about how if you mess anything up in the timeline, it ruins everything. <laughs> and on the flip side, I got friends who were, you know, working really hard on addressing the climate crisis. And they're like, we are not convinced we have 100 years, far less 200. And I don't want to know if that's the case, because I'd rather be focused on doing the work than, you know, getting information that might cause me to give up, um, because I live in hope. And I think that nothing is set in stone for the future. So even though I know the risks inherent in this, if I could go back in time and change one thing, mm-hmm. I was thinking I would like to have a conversation with Paul to say, hey, I know that you like women and think that the, that women have a role in the church, but there are some folks who are going to stick some stuff into your letters that makes it sound like you don't. Um, is there a way that you could be more explicit about how 
men and women and people across the gender spectrum are all part of God's plan and ministry. And could you also sneak in some stuff that makes it really clear that exploitation of people is really a sin in the eyes of God? So that's, I think, what I would do because um, I like to think that that would have some ripple effects that would be really helpful for us down the road. I think you're 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 that's probably excellent insight, Chanda. Um, I was thinking about the uh, passage as you were just sharing that, and uh, I wanted to just take a a look because I'm thinking it's First uh, Corinthians in chapter fourteen, and uh, that was the chapter where uh, it gets often misrepresented mm-hmm. uh when paul speaks about uh the women and the women being silent in the churches mm-hmm. and the 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 misrepresentation is that is that paul is asking that so to speak um as uh, uh kind of a a, a a question but it's not uh the question that he doesn't so to speak already have the answer to right uh you know uh, uh women should keep silent in the church of course not right uh, you know did the word of god begin with you right uh, and even more he uses the uh feminine article uh hey which often is referring to uh when you speak about uh so to speak uh, the 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 uh, I think it was the feminine nominative case, uh-huh. and and so it even there it is uh, the representation that he is saying that it's a ridiculous idea to think that women should not have leadership in the church that they shouldn't have voice yep. in in the church. Uh, it's almost uh, like a I'm not sure if I'm thinking correctly, but it's, uh, again, I'm not thinking of that word at the moment, but it's where the question itself, mm-hmm. you know, so so to speak, you know, is almost uh, uh, maybe hypothetical or something, but yeah. it's this sense to where, of course, the way the leadership of women uh, belong to the church. Yep. So, so anyway, um, um, I agree that would be one thing that would probably uh, save this church uh, from centuries of painful uh, delineation or, or discernment that's needed and still needed, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. You know? um, but I also think about the other aspect of it where to think about something 200 years from now, and being in the position of knowing whatever it is we're doing right now, it ain't going to work. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. And hope is a wonderful member of the other Trinity, you know, mystery, yep. Yep. faith, hope. That's right. But it was never intended to be a plan. Right. 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 It was supposed to be an impetus. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we doing now, Shonda? 
Now, now, now that we have uh, basically enlightened uh, all of our listeners, you know, what are, we doing, what are we doing for the next 40 minutes? We can just call it. Okay. No, we're supposed to talk about your book. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that's, that. Then. We're supposed to talk about your book. So uh, we've chosen to call this podcast Conversations in Color because it is a me metaphor that describes in-depth discussions having a lasting impact on our lives. Shonda, the focus of your book, most recent writing, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, are, as you refer to it, the learnings about our web of ancestors that bring a rich tapestry of stories into our lives. You compile a number of conversations for this book. Interesting conversations, mm -hmm. uh, intriguing, uh, but also some that um, were very stirring. Yeah. Some in some some in some in some some very uh, hopeful ways, and then some had some real pain to them. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I want to ask. Uh, what was your most memorable, so to speak, conversation in color among the people that you interviewed for this book? And can you tell us about it? You know, it's interesting because one of the things I did, and this was kind of a grand experiment and it turned out beautifully, was I hosted two different wisdom circles. And each of those wisdom circles met monthly for a year. And one of them was for people of color and one of them was for white people. And it was interesting because I would, I would propose similar questions to each group and where we went in each group was very, very different in really powerful ways. There was a question I asked early on to both groups around who are some ancestors whose stories people tried to hide from you? What were some of the stories that uh, maybe the family thought were embarrassing? And it was fascinating because the, the people of color stories were often, I had an auntie who, who knew traditional medicine uh, and because we had been told by missionaries that that was, you know, satanic, we wrote her out of the stories. Um, or one of my favorite stories, and I wrote it in my, my editor, who was phenomenal, uh, cut this story out. So I'm super sad about that. Uh, one of my good friends said, you know, I didn't realize that my family from this small town in Texas were just such troublemakers. They were legendary. That particular family name, everybody knew it because they were the ones who were always breaking stuff and starting fights and, you know, uh, just running roughshod. But he said, tiny little town. My family was black. Um, there was one time the sheriff showed up at my great great grandmother's house and said, I arrested your son. I need you to come pick him up because if the rest of your family finds out he's in jail, it is not worth my life. And so I love <laughs> the fact that this should have been an embarrassing story, but what it says is my family rolled deep for each other, right? Mm -hmm. And I love, I love that on the surface, that's a, they were, they were a pain in the butt. They were, they were misbehaved. They didn't know how to do right. Yeah. But in 
an incredibly racist town in Texas um, all those years ago, this black family had enough power that the white sheriff was like, take him off my hands. I do not want to die this way. Um, and I love that. Right. So that was what was beautiful is in the people of color uh, stories. We ended up tapping into what we were supposed to be ashamed of versus um, what we uh, what we realized was shameful was in the world around us. Right. What was shameful was the missionaries saying your ancestral wisdom, the you know, the learning how to use the plants in your community, uh, telling us that that was evil. Well, that was the missionaries who should be ashamed or their descendants should be ashamed of those ancestors. We didn't need, we shouldn't have had to be ashamed. What was interesting was in the white people's circle, um, there was more of a mixture of stories. Sometimes it was, I had, I had an ancestor who stood up against the forces of evil. I had a, you know, one, one person shared a story of a great, great grandfather of hers who had been killed by, um, soldiers during the confederate soldiers during the civil war and it was because he wouldn't join with the confederacy even though he lived in the south and was a white man and that story got erased from her lineage because even though he was on the right side of history he had been a troublemaker and that's not how you survive and that's not how you function within a culture of white supremacy, resisting white supremacy comes at too much of a cost. They didn't want to pass that lesson of a troublemaker in their lineage, right? So I think that that's, um, and simultaneously, there were also, I had ancestors who were enslavers. I had ancestors who, one, one person who talked about the key role his stepfather played in the Southern strategy by Richard Nixon, and how as he engages the memory of his stepfather, he has to wrestle with, he caused a whole bunch of harm and he loved me. What do I do with that, right? So it was really interesting that the conversations that emerged in those two different circles, some of my friends joked with me that I was segregating uh, my conversation partners, but it created freedom. I mean, you know this because we do caucusing and anti-racism work where people of color have conversations with each other and white folks have conversations with each other so that we can come back together better. Yeah. Um, and I think that th I've always known why that was valuable for people of color because I'm always in the people of color caucus and kind of white folks often come back kind of exhausted from their caucusing. Mm -hmm. This was a remarkable experience where the white folks were like, oh my gosh, we get to talk about our stuff without being disrespectful to people of color. We get to talk about the harm we've experienced without taking time away from people of color. Um, the white folks experienced it as a gift as well. And it's interesting because, I mean, there's an irony in that the folks who were showing up were all committed to uh, racial justice. That was part of why they were showing up. And it was a gift to not have to translate for each other so that they could each go deep uh, in ways they couldn't have when they were trying to take care of and protect each other. Uh, and it does mean we come back together better because uh, I really do believe in a multiracial anti-racist community. Uh, it was just striking to me how much depth of relationship and how much healing could happen when we took a little bit of time to delve deep into our own stuff with other people who had similar experiences. 
Well, I think that's a part of the reason that you and I have continued with this, Shonda, in terms of the pro-reconciliation anti-racism work is because it is freeing work. It is. As you said in your book, it is freeing work. It frees all of us. Um, and sometimes uh, those who are on both, so to speak, um, uh, sides of those caucusings, uh -huh. the people of color, uh, as well as those who are white, uh, there are these stories that have the capacity to free us, which is a part very much of what your book is about, certainly more, but in, in terms of its, its in-depthness, but, uh, but it is about these stories that yes. free us. Yes. Uh, and, and even now, as you talk about it, uh, among those are these stories of, of bravery, right? Yeah. Bravery that happens uh, for uh, the, those who are white that, uh -huh. that, that they can uh, hold on to yeah. uh, in our, in our uh, uh, workshops or trainings or whatever you, you want to call them. Uh, we talk about the importance of reclaiming stolen stories. Yes, which is so much a part of uh, of, of your book in terms of that, uh, even as you talked about the editor, but the sense of having one of those stories uh, basically edited out yeah. uh, for the sake of the the work itself, the book itself. But um, you know, even myself, there are these stories. I, a story of what my grandmother in this small, poor town in North Carolina, my grandmother who. Uh, wasn't even five feet tall, uh, but how she went to the sheriff's office. And uh, my dad had just come home from Vietnam oh. and his driver's license had expired. And uh, I had just been born. I was in the hospital and my, there my dad was sitting in the jail cell. And my grandmother marches in there and basically just says that my dad, you know, that he had better be out of the jail uh, and ready to leave when she was ready to leave. And he was. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, we have these stories and- And uh, and they can be empowering, right? Like knowing that that's who you come yes. from matters, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, so uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. And yet, you know, uh, who, you know who, do you, who do you think you are? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we are these stories, you know, yeah. we are these stories. And so I just think that that's so much a part uh, of the 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 importance of your book and what your readers will take from it. Uh, you have uh, um, a really pressing day, Shonda, but uh, I want to ask this question and, and kind of get to maybe one or two others before we have to let you go. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but in your book, you describe this intricate process of discernment. Um, and I'd like for you to maybe share a little bit more for our for our audience uh, so that they will have a sense of it uh, when they go online uh, to purchase your book uh, at the low, low price of what is it now? It's $19.99. At the low, low price of $19.99. So uh, you talk about stories and you kind of categorize them for 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 your your reader. So this process, stock stories, concealed stories, creating counter storytelling, 
resistance stories that are emerging, transforming towards the impetus of action change. So let's start with the first one. Tell us what are stock stories? Yeah, and I need to cre give credit where credit's due. I believe it's Leanne Bell who created the uh, storytelling project model. And uh, the organization she works with gave me permission to use this methodology. And I use it all over the place. I've used it in book groups. I've used it in organizing places. I'm part of an organizing campaign. And the person who's leading it just read my book and messaged me and said, oh, can we use the storytelling project model in how we do community organizing with this specific campaign, which I love. I love that we can apply this in practical ways. So stock stories are, you know, the stories we're told that, uh, that are unnuanced, that uh, maybe put the people in power in a good light. Uh, you know, the old stories like, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, or the story of the first Thanksgiving where uh, Indians and pilgrims shared a meal in harmony, or, you know, the story of um, the great frontier and all of the, you know, American know-how and fortitude that created that experience. Those would be the stock stories that don't tell what's going on underneath, that just tell the big broad strokes. So Shonda, uh, what about those that we are familiar with? We've been in certain uh, gatherings when we've been doing and having these conversations and someone would say, well, there you go again, damning our ancestors. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this comes up every Columbus Day mm -hmm. um, where somebody's like, I'm Italian. Why are you trying to take away my ancestors? And I'm like, do you know how many, am I allowed to say badass? You just did it. Don't okay. <laughs> Do you know how many badass Italian ancestors you have? You have anti-fascist ancestors. You have ancestors who invented things. You have ancestors who can cook some of the best food on the planet. Why would you not want to claim the ancestors who were part of resistance movements, ancestors who created great art, ancestors who were part of radical feminist movements? There are a lot of really cool Italian ancestors. Columbus probably in your blood anyhow. Um, if you're just choosing a cultural ancestor, there are so many cool Italian ancestors to choose from. Yes. Uh, so I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting is um, sometimes it feels like an attack on white folks. It might be an attack on whiteness because whiteness was constructed in mm -hmm. order to consolidate power and take away white folks' ancestors in the process. Mm -hmm. So when we start looking at other stories, um, there are really inspiring stories of, I mean, you know about Bacon's Rebellion. There were white indentured servants joining up with Black enslaved folks to take on the plantation owners. That those are some ancestors you want to claim. The the folks who were part of the Haymarket riot, they were European immigrants who were like, we are done with our labor being exploited, and they risked and lost their lives to fight for the weekend. Right. Um, those are some ancestors you want to claim. There's some really, really exciting stories. Of, well, there, there, there's yeah. some exciting things that you write about in your book when you speak about the opportunity to, so to speak, choose. Yeah. In terms of those who we can uh, claim as well. 
mm-hmm. as part of our stories mm-hmm. and, and do it in, in an authentic way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we definitely need to wrestle with our biological ancestors, but we also, we do have ancestors who are from our cultural background. And for those of us who are committed to justice, and this this book was kind of my love letter to activists, um, for those of us who are committed <laughs> to doing justice in the world, we've also got ancestor ancestors from the social justice movement, right? I have, I have learned so much uh, from people like Harvey Milk and Rosa Parks and Ella Baker and Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Cesar Chavez, Gustavo Gutierrez, he's still alive. uh, So he's an elder rather than an ancestor. Mm -hmm. But like, Mm -hmm. there are so many people who have done amazing things to take on injustice that I get to learn from them. um, And those get to be my ancestors as well. Amen. Amen. Uh, So you 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 uh, you also mentioned others uh, concealed stories. What are concealed? Yeah. Stories? So when we just stick with the stock stories, what often gets ignored is the suffering, right? So when we talk about the great American frontier, the attempted eradication of indigenous people is the concealed story. We know more and more about it now, but there are an awful lot of individual stories, especially on the land that we specifically inhabit, right? If I think of myself as I live in Oakland, um, I don't always think about the Ohlone people who uh, who got displaced so that people who were not indigenous could live here. If I think of this as um, Chin, uh, which is the Ohlone name for this land, it gets me thinking a little bit differently about whose land this is, the ancestors that uh, belong to this landscape. So those are the concealed stories is the harm that was caused. But the interesting thing is what we, sometimes we get, we've gotten better at telling the concealed stories. I think people are increasingly aware of the suffering that colonization caused, the suffering that enslavement caused, um, the, yeah, the suffering that empires cause. What we don't always tell are the stories of resistance. In every case where there was suffering and oppression, there were people fighting back in a million different ways. And those stories are important too, because like I said, it's important for us to know that as early as 1676, black enslaved folks were saying, we will not put up with this. It is also really important for white folks to know that there were white folks who were standing with black folks and fighting back too. Um, so I think these resistance stories matter because they do connect us to what our ancestors did to make the world a better place. And a lot of the reason we live in a better world than that one is because of often unnamed uh, folks who fought back and didn't put up with the conditions that were imposed on them. Thanks, Shonda. So you mentioned this other creating counter storytelling. And Mm -hmm. as you talk about that, what does it also mean in terms of um, the efforts to create these uh, counter storytelling efforts in the face of, of adversity, such as the, such as the Ron DeSantis and others. Right. And uh, you know, this, um, 
kind of uh, hypocrisy in regards to uh, their opposition to wokeness. Right, right, right. Um, I think it's worth unpacking the term wokeness and maybe uh, uh, not. Only if you you have enough time to do that unpacking for us, Shana. Yeah, I won't do it right now, but I think that's part of our job at some point. Um, You know, it's funny because I think this is what comes up with, uh, you know, the term PC also is, are you saying that you want permission to be hurtful to other people because that's a strange request to make. Um, If you're saying, you know, the PC police are a problem, what is it you want to say? What is it that you think you should be saying that people are taking away from you? Is it that you think you want to say the N-word? Is it that you want to defame people who are um, dealing with mental health issues? Are those things you want to be doing? I think it's interesting to not seed the frame, right? Right. Uh, I'm not going to defend political correctness. I'm going to ask what it is that you want to get away with. Um, When we talk about, yeah, when we talk about wokeness, I think, what is it that you think didn't happen that we're naming? Where is it that you think we're being inaccurate? So what I think is really exciting about counter storytelling is Telling those stories of resistance, telling the concealed stories, telling the stories of resistance from our history, and then connecting them to what's going on now. Um, You know, we often do a timeline of history in our anti-racism trainings. I do a little bit of a variation on that. It's a river of history exercise. um, And everybody can pick up a piece of paper with information on the back of it about a various, you know, whatever piece of history on on race they don't already know a lot about. And they talk with their table mates about what they hadn't known until they read that piece of paper. And then they connect it to something that's going on today. And I think that matters because if they picked up the piece of paper about um, Ozawa versus the United States, which was about Asian immigrants specifically, but immigrants uh, not being given access to the vote in 1921. I think that case was 20, 1920. Right. Is that right? Um, I think that's right. They, to say, so how does that connect here? It gives you a chance to talk about how uh, Latinos had to fight for their right to the vote in Texas in this decade. Right. That case went to the Supreme Court. There were black folks in North Carolina and Latinos in Texas that came together in a joint case that went Mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court because they were being disenfranchised. Um, So if we look at these pieces of resistance history of where people stood up against injustice way back when, and then we say, so what's going on today? Where are people resisting today? Where are people pushing for a different world today from that same lineage? It gives us a connection. It gives us a place to apply the stories of our ancestors. It also reminds us that the things that are going on today are the same level of stakes. Because when it, when it's just part of the air we breathe, it's easy to be like, you know, basically our voting rights are intact, right? I'm not sure why they're making such a fuss. People generally get to vote. Uh, that doesn't feel like a big threat. When you connect it back to a long history, you realize oh, this is part of something bigger and this moment also matters. So yeah, I think that that's a real gift we get to give each other and ourselves. So how does action happen? 
Yeah. And as, I think and as you categorize, as the, the model speaks of it, action change. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so what I love about this model is, you know, so you talk about the stock story, Columbus discovered the Americas and that's in air quotes. The concealed story is all of the suffering, uh, the disease, the harm, the, you know, decimation of populations, uh, the desecration of land and sacred places. The resistance stories are even from the very first time, you know, we, we do, if we tell the concealed stories, sometimes say these poor innocent people who didn't, you know, fight back got wiped out. but there were people fighting back against Columbus from his earliest arrival, and those stories matter. And it's interesting because that gives us a chance to think about things like the land back campaign, where indigenous people are saying, actually, we're the stewards of this land. It's important for us to continue to be the stewards. Uh, things like the Dakota Access Pipeline case, you know, the water is life, line three up in Minnesota, where indigenous people today are saying, we are the caretakers of this land. You will not destroy it uh, because this land and this water are sacred. That's going on today. And so that gives us a chance to say, well, where might I be able to show up and support that work? I care about the water and land. I'm a Christian. It is, it is my birthright to be invested in the thriving of God's creation. If these folks are leading that charge, and this is in fact their land, that gives me an opportunity to engage with that campaign and to engage in it with the humility of not trying to be another Columbus. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there is something about um, paying attention to how those stories of resistance show up in the present and finding our role within them. And that's where our own ancestors can be helpful. I have Asian ancestors uh, from not that long ago when the Asian student movement of the 1970s, which worked in solidarity with the Black Panther Party and with the Brown Berets and with the uh, American Indian movement. The fact that people of all of these different cultural backgrounds came together around anti-war work, around environmental stewardship, as well as around racial justice, um, as well as around economic justice. What was the name of the uh, white folks from West Virginia who moved up to Chicago and were doing organizing? The Black Panther Party trained them. I cannot think of the name of it right now, but we yeah, all I can't have, help it at the moment either. I yeah, but we all have ancestors who showed up with each other to support each other's movements. The fact that the Black Panther Party was like, hey, poor white folks from West Virginia, we want to support you uh, is not a story that gets told very much. And it's one that we have some things to learn from. So Shauna, in your, your book's title, Rebels, Despots, and Saints. Among these three, who's your favorite? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because rebels and saints might be a false separation, right? Because uh-huh. a lot of those rebels really are saints. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the reason I called it that was we've got complicated ancestors. Mm-hmm. And most of us have more oppressed than oppressor in our background. But most of us also have people who collaborated with the oppressors for our survival, for our family's betterment. And those are stories we have to wrestle with. So we might not have despots in our uh, ancestry, 
but we probably have people who supported the despots and we've got to wrestle with what that means uh, and what we can learn from that and how we can position ourselves so we don't have to collaborate with our oppressors. Um, and I think we often get the stories of the rebels erased because they're embarrassing because the folks who want to keep us safe know right. that sticking our necks out doesn't keep us safe and they don't want us to know the stories of the troublemakers of the rebels um so i definitely have a spot a soft spot for them uh and sometimes the folks we've been told are saints are not because mm -hmm. we've only gotten a stock story mm -hmm. and some of the folks we weren't told were saints actually are um and so i think that i love that you invited me to think about that because i don't know that i've unpacked it that carefully but um, I think that we have a little bit of a mixture of all of those in our backgrounds, and that gives us a lot to wrestle with, come to terms with, and also find power and strength from. Mine are the rebels. I believe it. Mine are the rebels for the various reasons that you talked about, you know, that often the rebels are not necessarily as eager to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. But the reason that they're out in front uh, sometimes aren't as easily identified. It's not, sometimes it's not that they wanted to be out in front. Right. It was that nobody else would. Yep. It's also in the Black community where there's a reason why when they refer to some of the clergy in the church, not so much now, but decades ago, centuries ago, sometimes they would refer to their pastors as rib. Yeah. Not not yes. rev. Not rev. Yeah, rev. you're right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was a it was a, a it was all it was a term of endearment because they yeah. knew what that leadership meant. Yeah. To them and to others in their community. If nobody else was going to be the rebel. Yeah. The reverend was. Yes. And so it wasn't rev, it was rev. Yep. And I some people, that. some people mistook that as the dysfunction of understanding and of being able to articulate the language. Mm -hmm. But it was it was very much uh, deliberate. Yeah, yeah, I love that so much. That's beautiful. It's interesting because as you're telling that story, I find myself thinking about Vernon Johns. Um, who was Martin Luther King's predecessor. Uh, right. And they were not always excited because he absolutely was a rep. Um, and so they wanted someone who was going to be better behaved. So they got rid of him and brought in Dr. King. I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they knew what they were doing, didn't they? Yeah. Despite <laughs> themselves, they couldn't yes. help but do the right thing. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So... Uh, I, I know that um, that we we need to uh, to let you go. Uh, one more question, uh, Shonda, and uh, take as much time as you as you can. Can you describe the feelings that inspired your convictions that we aren't whole without the full story of not only our ancestral DNA, but as we were saying earlier but also the opportunity of the stories of others that we can include for authentic reconciliation. For example, 
the stories that you wrote about in one of your chapters of the stories of Roger Tanney and Lynn Jackson. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Enlighten us a bit. Yeah. This is one of those, you know, when people are like, why are you trying to make me think about people in my history who are bad? This is such a great example of the beauty that can come from wrestling with even our messiest ancestors, even the ancestors who did harm. Um, so if you ever visit the courthouse in St. Louis, there's a statue of um, Dred Scott and his wife facing away from the courthouse because uh, Dred, uh, you, you know this already, but Dred Scott uh, and his family had been enslaved, but the family who enslaved them had been in a free state for enough time that he technically counted as free. And so when mm -hmm. he said, hey, I've been in, I want to say it was Kansas, um, long enough that I'm actually free now, this went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, no matter where in the United States you are, even if it's in a free state, if you're enslaved, you're enslaved. Right. Um, and the the case was first heard in St. Louis, which is why the statue's there. And Judge Taney was the head of the Supreme Court who made that decision. Mm -hmm. Many, many years later, the descendant, one of the descendants of Justice Taney um, wrote a play about that and wrote a play imagining um, the fullness of the stories of those people and acknowledging the brutality of that moment and of the many years after it. Um, and invited some of Dred Scott's descendants to come to the play, and they began to form relationships, and they began to get together every year, and at one point, uh, the descendants of Justice Taney were like, hey, there's a statue of him in Annapolis. We, we want to tear it down. What's interesting is the descendants of Dred Scott uh, were like, I don't know if that's the solution. And as they worked out something together, they came up with the idea of a statue of Dred Scott facing Justice Taney so that um, into perpetuity, he would be held accountable. Um, before they had a chance to do that, the, uh, the effort to tear down the statues of uh, harmful folks from our history, uh, got there first so that statue's down but over the years those descendants and you talked about Roger Taney and Lynn Jackson they they visit college campuses they go speaking all across the country about what it can look like to make right the sins of our fathers so that we can be in more full relationship and the main reason they say to do it that they do it is because it allows them to be in deep and meaningful relationship. And if they ignored that history, they would never be able to really uh, experience that depth of connection. Uh, and I think that that's an amazing result of actually confronting, even when our ancestors do harm, there is amazing good that we can make from it. And that might actually be what we're called to. Yeah. And I was just thinking about, even with that tanny, versus uh, that decision, you know, with a Dred Scott, the stories yeah. of resistance. Yep. That I'm not sure it was the grandson mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Judge Warren, mm -hmm. who was the only 
dissenting voice in that case. Yes. And he became the chief justice. Yep. For the 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. Yep. Yep. And the sense of divine, I believe, divine presence. Yeah. And what it meant for him to be in that place. Yes. At that moment. To, to be, be carrying that, out be, his yes. legacy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. yes. I love that. Yeah. Well, Shana, thank you for your time with us. As always, when you come, you bless us with your stories, with your presence, uh, your intellect that just, uh, just lightens up the place. Uh, so we want to say again, thank you and our best wishes to you and the work you're doing with Without Fear Consulting. And if people want to be in touch with you, uh, just tell us again how folks can do that. Yeah, I think the easiest and place to find to buy your book, the best place to get your book. I love it. So if you're looking for the book, uh, it is published by Chalice Press, and that's a nonprofit uh, denominational press that is committed to doing God's work of justice in the world. So if you go to the Chalice Press website or order it from your local bookstore, uh, yeah. because it is always great to support uh, our local bookstores where they keep the money in the community. Um, or get your library to order you a copy because I would love, I libraries helped raise me. Uh, and so I'm a fan yeah. of, I'm a fan of libraries. Yes. So that's another option. Um, if you want to connect with me, I do a weekly newsletter called joy with justice, uh, joy in justice um, around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. And you can sign up for that at withoutfearconsulting.com. That would be an easy place to find me. Thanks Shonda. Well, best wishes as you rush from here. I think last time you were with us, you were on your way to the oh airport. Oh gosh, that's right. So, <laughs> that's um, you know, so it's good to know that, you know, we, we get to catch you, you know, in between these transitions. So, uh, it was such wishes. a gift to be with you, Marcus and Kate. Thanks so much. You're very welcome, Shonda. Take care. Take care. A definition for the word emerge is to become apparent or more prominent. The act of moving out of or away from something in order to come into view. In our podcast today, our guest, Shonda, in discussing her most recent book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, she talked with us about the storytelling project model that was presented to her by Lee Ann Bell. One of the aspects of that model of storytelling is that word emerge. It's a methodology of a group of people emerging, 
transforming stories. As a matter of fact, transforming their own stories. The stories of people who belong to oppressed groups, but through courage and through care, care for themselves as well as care for their communities. They're working on transforming their present realities. Efforts to come from what had been known through the experiences of their ancestors and then to come into view as people with stronger identities and deliberate action for change. I guess emerging could be considered a part of a counter-narrative, counter-cultural, which reminds me of the ministry of Jesus Christ. One would only need to spend just a few moments in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and even more specifically, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, from the very beginning of that fifth chapter, and the Beatitudes. And as one would read that Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. And then Jesus began to speak. And to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry and throughout his life of ministry, until his crucifixion, as his work among humanity, it was a work of offering a counter-narrative to what had been known to the ancestors. And through that counter-narrative, a new community began to emerge. Historically, it would be almost another three centuries before that new community that had begun to emerge would come more fully into view. 
It was not until the year 325 that the Emperor Constantine embraced and offered support for the Christian community, making the church an institution, one that would certainly become an institution of both wealth and power. And that is a conversation for another podcast. But as I sit here in the place in which I am blessed to serve in ministry here at United Christian Parish, and as the sun's light beams through the window of the office in which I sit, and the brilliant and the blessed brightness of the sun shines through, I, along with so many of you, since the emerging of a new season, not only the season of Lent that we use as our opportunities for preparation, for spiritual deep introspection in preparation for the celebration of Easter, but it is also the emergence of spring as we begin to move away from winter. And in doing so, I'm reminded of the now, but not yet. My neighbors are anticipating the blossoming of the hibiscus trees that are part of the garden at my home. They, as well as, as I, I'm looking forward to the wonderful hue of colors when these hibiscus come into bloom. The deep red purple, the brilliance that comes from the leaves that show the, the vibrancy of this flower that represents so much to so many cultures. This hibiscus that has the history of being cultivated many centuries ago in tropical Asia that I'm able to enjoy, my neighbors are able to enjoy right in my own backyard. The hibiscus that can grow to be as large as 12 feet tall, that has so many medicinal values used for anti-inflammatory drugs, used to help in terms of preventing blood clots and decrease fevers, to reduce pain. In its history, it's been utilized in certain areas to treat malaria. Shucks, I've even used it to help for what might be a possible resolution for high blood pressure. 
I also appreciate the author, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. You might recognize the name from TED Talk. Adichie offered a brilliant conversation about the danger of the single story. Adichie also utilized the hibiscus, the purple hibiscus, this delicate flower for the title of her first novel. In the Hindu faith, there's the goddess who is represented by the name Kali, but also in reference to the hibiscus. The name of this goddess referencing ultimate power and, and time. The hibiscus, this resilient flower, there's a period where it experiences dormancy. The word is, is called deciduous. But this moment of dormancy, this luxury, is not one that we have as the church, not as United Christian Parish. Like my neighbors, there are so many people who depend upon the full blossom of United Christian Parish, the full blossom of its vision and its ministries. And as we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of this congregation committed to ecumenism, diversity, inclusion, and equity, we recognize that there is a new community that is emerging right here in Reston, Virginia. And it is this community that is anticipating the fullest blossom of United Christian Parish that will be available to them as hope, as healing, and an opportunity for wholeness. There are the communities that are represented by the LGBTQ community, the community that has experienced the marginalization, being ostracized, not counted, the community that has experienced loss, alienation, isolation, who've known the taste of the saltiness of their tears, 
and the agonizing of nights spent alone in fear and exposed to the, to the elements due to the causes of, of unhoused. These are just a few of the people who are part of this emerging community that is hoping, even praying, for the benefit of the coming of the not yet. The not yet is the fullest sustainability of United Christian Parish in this community. When our annual board report was shared, it spoke about the intentions of this 50th anniversary of United Christian Parish, reflecting on the past, celebrating the present, preparing for the future. And as a part of that report, it was stated that United Christian Parish has been running a budget deficits for many years and its reserves are now running low. Although the pandemic made things worse, the pandemic was not the only cause. But because we need deliberate action to help in terms of sustainability for the future and these communities that are consistently emerging. We have a goal, a goal to balance our 2024 budget with no drawdown from the reserves, that we will meet the goal and do so in such a way that the communities that love United Christian Parish and the communities that receive the benefit of this ministry, those who are a part of the international communities that receive the gifts of our mission, such as the Haiti House of Hope, Save the Children, Living Waters for the World, and the disaster release of our four denominations in which this congregation consists, the local communities in terms of George Mason University and the U Campus Ministry of Arise, the Appalachia health wagon, our contributions to Lake Elementary School and its principal's fund. There are so many ways and so many witnesses to what it means to have the sustainability that is ongoing for this congregation. And it is my prayer that when each and every con community that anticipates to see this church 
in full blossom in their lives and in the lives of those who need this ministry. That they will, they will see and experience the presence of the already and even the buds of the not yet. That they will see the mission in fullest bloom that they will see the bright and the brilliance of ministries that are in growth and extended to all and the vibrant and captivative vision that is alive and is indeed exciting, excitingly captivative. And so when I think about the hibiscus that my neighbors are anticipating to be in blossom, I'm also thinking about the neighbors whom Jesus Christ said are, are all of ours. And that is whom I'm anticipating to see the joy to see the exuberance of this church in its fullest blossom long after my ministry has passed. Yeah, 